There's a Native American story that takes place during a season of great hardship where a grandmother sat with her grandson. And she said to her grandson, I feel as though there are two wolves fighting in my heart. One wolf is the vengeful, angry, impatient one. And the other wolf is loving, understanding, and kind. And the grandson looked up at her, his grandmother, and said, Which one will win, O grandmother? Which one will win? And the grandmother replied, The one I feed. The one I feed. And so tonight I'd like to talk about that what places in our hearts, what habitual places in our hearts are we feeding, fueling? And how can we uh, incline the mind towards the ones that lead to harmony, that lead to uh, respect for ourselves, respect for others? So really the talk tonight is about loving-kindness or metta. A very big part of our spiritual growth, of our maturing, has to do with being really honest with ourselves, being so courageous that we can open to whatever is unfolding and actually recognize what tendencies and habit patterns are we fueling and feeding that lead to beauty in our life, inner beauty, where there's harmony, within, harmony without? And what habit patterns are we feeding and fueling that lead to disharmony, to disrespect for ourselves and disrespect among others, towards others, from others? Can we be really clear about that? The practices we are doing the awareness practice and the metta practice that we're doing here give us the skills to open our minds and hearts to bring a sense of awareness to whatever's happening and also with the metta practice a very genuine sense of tenderness. We want to be able to open to all that comprises this inner world so that we can open to all that comprises this outer world without blame, without judgment, without separation. Usually the separation that occurs in this outer world is because it's reflecting the separation in our own hearts, something within ourselves that we can't face. How can we open to what is unwholesome, unbearable, and yet meet it with more gentleness? I think that's a question that a lot of us are trying to answer with our very lives, not just with words. How can we be more friendly with all of ourselves and not meet it with more aggression? There's a lot of subtle self-aggression that happens within ourselves that we come to know more honestly in our practice. Another question is, how can we recognize more clearly and confidently what is wholesome 
and to nourish that, to incline the mind there over and over and over again so that it becomes a very clear pathway, not an obscure one, not a pathway that has not been trodden upon very much, only when we're absolutely, we absolutely are at our wit's end. One of um, my students along the way said that most of the time she ends up in the cow paths of her mind. You know, somebody asked, did I say cow paths or did I say cow paths? Well, they both can be about the same. (laughs) So that's where we end up. We can end up a lot, just in those very familiar, well-trodden places that, uh, you know, we've got a very clear pathway to because that's where habitually we always go. So we really need to practice with a lot of diligence and gentle, persevering effort to create other pathways in our hearts, in our minds. Indeed, science is finding today that in the physical brain, new pathways are being noticed and found because of meditation. And indeed, that, as the Buddha said, when we renounce what is unwholesome and we nourish what is wholesome, new pathways are made, are discovered, are able to be accessible to us. A lot of us, when we come to this practice of loving-kindness, we have some idea that we might be always opening to some uh, beautiful place, be in some blissful uh, floating cloud. But we know through experience just in these few days that that isn't so. That uh, metta practice is also a purification practice in its own way in that it exposes places of our hearts, of our minds, that are not so beautiful, that are hard to be with. And so lots of times people wonder, well, what am I going to experience when I do this metta practice? Well, the fact is that we experience it all. We open to everything in our hearts. And hopefully we can open to what's beautiful with less and less attachment. We can open to what's hard, what's difficult, with less and less aversion, with more tenderness. We learn the skills we need to, not just to open to it, but to receive it, to be receptive to what's going on, so that, uh, that those forces of aversion aren't sneaking in there, those forces of aggression, those forces of resistance, are not pushing away what's painful, not holding on to what's, uh, what's easy to be with. The Buddha called metta, or loving-kindness practice, a protective practice, one of the four protective practices, because it protects us from those states of mind that cause pain and suffering. It not only protects us, of course, it protects others. It protects the world. And it helps us to live more comfortably in what the Buddha called 
the Brahma Viharas. Brahma means divine and Vihara means abiding place. So it's this divine abiding place, not outside of ourselves, not in any other place, but in our own hearts, minds, and bodies. So that we have this sense that that's where we can go for protection, not somewhere else. Early on in my practice, um, in my life, not necessarily when I came upon the Dharma, but even before that, I wanted to be at peace with myself, but I didn't want to depend on the church or a church or a structure that I would go to or another person. And so I wanted to find that in my heart. And when I heard these teachings on loving-kindness, it really resonated with me because it was about that divine abiding place within me that I could learn to nourish and understand how to get to easily. The Buddha said, What a person reflects upon for a long time to that her mind or his mind will incline. Well, when I first heard that, and I honestly took a, light, a, a look at where I reflected, what I reflected upon for long periods of time, the past, what happened to me, you know, how uh, I was uh, blamed, etc., etc., I realized that that reflection and where I incline the mind over and over is where I ended up, usually. I remember one time driving down um, this uh, Haleakala road down this mountain with uh, Munindraji, and he was with another teacher, Krishnaji. And I was taking them across the, the middle part of Maui to the other mountain, and I think for the, probably for the umpteenth or more than that time, I was telling him about my previous life. I mean, this life, but previous experience uh, with the father of my three children and how difficult that was. And Manindra, probably being, having had enough of it, hearing it over and over again, He stopped me, and it was the first time I ever heard, and probably the time I ever heard his voice raised so much, just to say, stop. What you think about over and over again, that's where where your mind is always going. What you talk about over and over again, that's where your mind is going. Stop it. And, you know, being an elder and him being in robes, well, of course I could. I mean, if Steve were telling me, I might do something else. But. <laughs> so it really stopped me in my tracks. <laughs> and then I read this from the Dhammapada. He insulted me, he hit me, he beat me, he robbed me. For those who brood on this, hostility is instilled. He insulted me, He hit me, he beat me, he robbed me. For those who don't brood on this, hostility is stilled. 
Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone does hatred cease. This is the ancient and unending law. So this understanding is wisdom. This understanding is protection. And this understanding is all about metta. It's all about loving-kindness, the opposite of hatred. As human beings, we supposedly have free will to choose how to respond to particular situations. But as I was remarking uh, earlier this afternoon, it really seemed to me that I didn't have free will, that I really didn't have choice, because the mind wasn't trained enough to have any other choice or little choice to go to the wholesome. It was more entrained, it was more habituated to go to the unwholesome. Of course, you know, the, the, it's changed and it's better now, but it's taken time and it's taken a lot of that gentle, persevering effort. It's taken commitment, it's taken patience, it's taken renunciation. It's taken all these qualities to continue to practice, to be on the path, to renounce what is unwholesome, to nourish what is wholesome, to develop wisdom. And so, as I continued to practice, I began to see that there was more choice available to me. And admittedly so, it's still hard. It's when I get to those places where it really stings me and it's my Achilles heel, it's very, very difficult when I can't see the selfless and permanent nature of things. But the question is uh, for me and continues to be, am I acting out of free will or unwholesome patterns? And it's a good question for all of us to consider If we don't have training, our habits come from delusion. Our habits come from not knowing, from a lack of true choice. Delusion is usually accompanied by forms of hatred or aversion, by forms of attachment or hanging on, or unwholesome desire. With training, it doesn't have to go there, although sometimes it does. And when it does we may be able to have more patience and wait before something comes out of our mouth, before we take an action. We may be able to recognize even that and to bring a measure of loving kindness to those places of impatience that come up, to the ill will that comes up. And uh, maybe it goes through our emotions, through the mind, but it doesn't have to come out of the mouth. It doesn't have to go into our actions. Recently, um, I was coming home from some travels in Asia, and amidst the hustle and bustle of the airport in Bangkok, when I was I was with my girlfriend, where we did some practice together in Burma, and then traveled around a bit there. It was very quick at the ticketing uh, station, and she was going to one area, and I was going to another for our check-in. Um, basically she was in first class, that's why. And so we were different areas. 
And so um, we quickly said, okay, we're going to go through the gates. And um, she said, where should we meet? And I quickly said, I'll meet you at, right after the gates, after we give our ticket that we've paid like $13 for. And so she was waiting for me at the place that she thought I said, and I was waiting for her at the place I thought I said. And so now, because she had this upgraded ticket, she could have gone uh, to you know a lounge for a couple of hours and maybe even brought me there, we didn't know, and waited there. But she waited for me for two hours at that place because that's what she thought you know, we, what our agreement was. And I was looking all over for her, didn't, rea- didn't really catch where she was at. We finally met up at the, um, when we embarked on the, at the gate. And she, uh, she arrived, and of course she was confused and quite upset. I don't blame her at all. And um, I could see it in her, in her actions and in her face and all of that. To be honest, I had a mix of feelings in myself, too. I felt, first, I felt a lot of self-blame for not being so clear with her. And then I felt blame because she wasn't clear with me. And then I felt uh, blame towards her because, or aggravation towards her because she was so upset with me. But there was a big part of me that could understand her upsetness, There was a big part of me that could have some genuine tolerance for it and some patience with it. If I didn't see that part, I wouldn't have a choice. If I I hadn't practiced to recognize that part of myself by knowing when it's there, by practicing the paramis, by practicing loving-kindness, I wouldn't be familiar with that pathway. But luckily... For most of the time, I was familiar with that pathway and was able to choose it in responding to her. Also, I felt a lot of tightening in my chest. A lot of, I, I felt fear of being blamed, and I felt um, just a lot of aggravation. I was tightened up. Breathing, I was able to soften that up. And so I kind of knew how to help myself to go there instead of staying in that really tightened, aggravated place. So there were some choices available to me, and, and at least when I was with her, I could make the choices that would preserve our friendship. Admittedly, when I wasn't with her, it was hard. You know, when I sat in the plane and, and I didn't know how she was feeling, and I felt upset sometimes, and... So it gave time for it to cool off, and um, at some point, about two hours into the flight, she approached me, and basically, we just let go. And it was, it was easy. We just let go. When I think about it now, I get a little tight, you know, and, but there's this ability to have a choice to let go. It comes and goes, but at least that pathway is accessible to me. It's not totally lost. There was a strong intention. There was a strong inclination to stay connected. And so that was 
uh, brought up also this afternoon. Someone made that wise remark about, uh, is it a good idea to have this intention for interconnectedness, to stay connected? And certainly it is, because that is my intention with all of my friends, to stay connected, to incline the mind towards friendship, to stay in harmony, to not layer any more ill will than is already there because conditions are like that. They, they Just conditions happen and ill will comes forth sometimes. So why layer any more onto the situation? It's important, it was really important for me to protect my friendship with her. So all of those things were underlying causes and conditions for uh, those choices to be made. And I hope that I can still make them. I feel fairly, um, I feel that I can rely upon that in, in a pretty good measure, but still have to practice. So like most of you, my own burning questions in life have been, What leads to disconnection? What leads to disharmony? What leads to it from what I bring out in myself? And how does that happen uh, from myself towards others? Can I be soberingly honest with myself about that, about how I am in the world, how I treat myself sometimes disrespectfully, And therefore, it's easy to treat others disrespectfully. Can I be really honest with that? What leads to the end of suffering in myself? What leads to connection with others? What leads to inner and outer harmony? I I ask these questions because I don't really have all the answers, but I think they're really good questions. And if we don't ask the questions our lives, our hearts don't incline there. We just keep on going in the cow paths of the mind, not training ourselves. So like all of you, I wanted to know these answers not from reading books, not from just hearing something in a holy place, not from intellectualizing or psychologizing it, but from my own experience, through training my own heart, my own mind, on the cushion and majorly in life. It's easy to hear something from someone else. And for ourselves, it's easy to sit there and say, oh, that's beautiful, that's true, that rings true. And for a while, that may stay with us, and we may have the glow that we get from someone else's darshan, so to speak, from someone else's light. But it's not our light. So it's not going to last too long. There's a Native American ancient wisdom that goes, gazing at the moon, I lose the pearl in my own hands. So what moon have you been gazing at, if any? Can you see the pearl the shining star, the light in your own heart? Can you develop that? 
One of my girlfriends, uh, older girlfriends, she's uh, 92 now, says, she always says, Kamala, it's a do-it-yourself job. I can't, I can't tell you. I can help you, but you have to do it yourself. So through practice in retreat on the cushion in the world, we're developing this uh, awareness. And with loving kindness, we're helping that awareness be more of an accepting kind of awareness. An awareness that can open to what is happening and not push it away with aversion, not hold on if it's pleasant. You'll hear, um, and you probably have heard during this retreat, a response about, it's just the nature. It's just the nature of the body to do like this. It's just the nature of the mind to do like that. And so we begin to see it's the nature that's of our lives that are that is unfolding moment by moment by moment. And basically a lot of what we're doing here on the cushion is some research on ourselves where certain things, and just in interview today, several people have said there's certain things that have been recognized and much more accepted that haven't been in the past. And there's a so- more of a softening around it not a hardening or not a pushing away because it's difficult, not an avoiding. One person said in the group interview very wisely that she went to her breath a lot to avoid being with whatever mind states came up, something like that. That going back to the breath or the primary anchor can be an avoidance of other things that need to be faced And so I I really saw how, uh, in myself, how much I appreciated a a more open awareness. So we do this for ourselves not to prove anything to anyone else. It's not for anyone else, but it's for our own discovery. Because if, as Steve said last night, unless we know where, where we're attached or what's holding us up or where we're stuck, we can't really get unstuck. It has to come out of delusion first. And then when it comes out of delusion, there's, when there's an absence of delusion, there's possibility for ignorance, for ign- wisdom. <laughs> ignorance, too. <laughs> I guess I'm speaking from experience. I just thought of that word ignorance because right before I said the word wisdom because a lot of times we just ignore what's happening. That's ignorance. And when we pay attention, that's wisdom. So how can we live from a place of not fooling ourselves, not getting trapped in our old ideas? What makes it possible to open to all that comprises this heart, mind, and body that we put a a title on called self, which actually is comprised of non-self pieces and experiences? 
What actually makes it possible is a lot of unconditional love. A lot of tenderness that's ready to open to whatever is happening without conditions. Without the conditions of, I'll open to you if you go away. I'll open to you if you don't bother me so much. I'll open to you if you dissolve. You know, it, it, it doesn't happen that way. We're changing our relationship to whatever is difficult. It's not, eventually it does become less and less. But it doesn't go completely away right away. It takes a long, long time. And during this time, it's really helpful if we have a different relationship to it. And that's what we're doing. We're transforming our relationship to all the hindrances from a relationship of unawareness to awareness. We're changing the relationship to the hindrances and all the difficult states of mind from one of ignorance to one of wisdom. We're changing the relationship to one of another layer of aversion, another layer of resistance, to one of acceptance, to one of unconditional love through metta. So this is what metta is doing, one of the um, transformative uh, things of the heart, transformative experiences of the heart. Metta is goodwill without any conditions. It's like it's an offering of goodwill to ourselves and to others without the condition that anything happen to whom we're offering it, to ourselves, to others, for the situation. We offer this goodwill for that sake alone, to develop goodwill. So they say that metta is like a true friend who wishes for our welfare or the welfare of another. When we say the phrase, or the phrases, may I be happy, may you be protected, that doesn't have a conditional uh, hook on it. We offer it just like that, without any conditions. It's not asking for anything in return when we're offering that. We're developing that capacity to have that wish, to have that phrase, that blessing come from deep within our hearts and to make a groove so that uh, we can fall into that place easily. We're not asking even for them to receive it. As you all know, sometimes when difficulties come in friendship, the other person is closed down for whatever reason for uh, a, a need for protection. Maybe that person feels they need to be secluded or protected or have some distance or whatever. But with metta, we can still offer our goodwill, even though that person may not accept it. So it's unconditional in that way also. We don't do it with any agenda or any baggage, because we say, I'm going to offer this to you so that you'll change. You know, 
Maybe if I love you enough, if I offer you enough love, maybe something will change within you. We have to be willing to offer it, not even expecting that, but just so that we can offer our love for that very simple reason. It's a, it's a very pure kind of um, offering. After a metta retreat here at uh, Spirit uh, IMS, <laughs> where am I? <laughs> uh, this gentleman wrote a poem, and it's so straightforward. I love this poem. It's about the purity of offering loving kindness. He said I could read it. When you look at a flower, when you love it, you don't ask for anything in return, do you? You just love it, and it's good. It's just that simple. Life is just that simple. I wish I could feel like that all the time. (coughs) Love is like a true and genuine giving generosity. It's really an unconditional gift to someone else. When we offer that gift over and over and over again, perhaps there'll be a connection. But even when there isn't, like when we're offering our unconditional love to the next person we're going to open to in our practice, a difficult person, we're not doing it so that we can become friends again or so that they can change or realize you know, that we're sorry and that we really do love them and Not for that at all, but just to offer that connection. Simply to offer that love. We do that with a quiet heart, without agitation. When there's some attachment to what we want out of it, we may feel some agitation in our heart. But if there's no attachment as... uh, Someone said today, we may feel happy about that. Just the capacity to offer without expecting anything. Sometimes when we do this practice, we expect some kind of high in it. But really, metta is very quiet. It's not this kind of celebratory enthusiasm that we might feel or this kind of syrupy experience that you know, is, might be expressed uh, from one of those old-fashioned Hallmark cards. But it's, it's a very quiet kind of a feeling. In the text, it says like this, it's like a gentle rain that falls on everyone, everything, without discrimination. So, of course, that can mean two things, you know, that metta doesn't discriminate. It it doesn't say, I love only this part of you and that part I can leave out. Metta says, I offer my love to all of who you are, every bit of who you are. It doesn't leave any part out. 
That phrase from the Buddha also means that we can offer our love to all beings. It's not just to one particular being and to all that that being manifests in their life. It doesn't mean that we condone the wrongdoing of that being or the wrongdoing of um, a particular group of beings in, in the world. But it means that we can still offer our love because love is wise and love maybe in the long run can be healing. If it isn't healing for the other, it's definitely healing for ourselves. So in that gentle rain, when that gentle rain falls within ourselves, we begin to recognize aspects, manifestations of loving kindness, like gratitude, like generosity, like patience, like the ability to let go. In the Abhidhamma, the Buddhist um, psychology, they call it, the state of loving kindness, or metta, is described as this word, adosa. Now, dosa means hatred or aversion, and adosa means the absence of hatred, the absence of aversion. And this hatred or aversion is what is called the far enemy of loving kindness, or ill will is another way to describe it the far enemy. They call it the far enemy because it can be seen from afar. It doesn't take too much to recognize. Recently, uh, there was a meeting I had with a neighbor. She was in a lot of pain and a lot of fear and trepidation because uh, we own uh, the land next to where her land is. And we were thinking that we were planning and seeing whether we need to put a road next to her property, their property. And, of course, she wants her privacy. They want their privacy. She wants her privacy, and she didn't want this. And something hit her very deeply about it, her, her deep sense of having a home and all of that. And she didn't want any road next to what was going to be next to uh, a new little cottage she's building for herself and her husband. So she, through that pain, because of that pain and that fear, she became um, upset and threw out a few threats to, to me and, and uh, towards us. It was really difficult to be with. I mean, I felt my limbs inside were shaking. If, if my um, nerves could be, were bones, I would have, you know, like broken bones. It was very, very hard to be with. So I was breathing and listening, and there was quite a bit of, you know, energetic um, static in the air. And I checked out inside myself as I was just just let her go through it and let her express because that's what was happening and 
I didn't have much to say then. And um, I checked out, and I didn't have this kind of syrupy loving kindness for her. I, I didn't have like, oh, you know, I feel so friendly towards you. <laughs> I had nothing like that, you know. But what I really noticed wasn't, was there, or wasn't there, was ill will. I didn't have a feeling of attacking. I didn't have a feeling of pushing away any kind of ill will, at least that I was conscious of, and I was really trying to be conscious during that interaction. And so because of that, it was possible for for me not to act out because I wasn't there at that moment. And I wasn't looking for any very high state of loving-kindness. It was really very quiet. So the point I'm trying to make is that this state of metta, of loving-kindness, can be very a very kind of quiet, gentle feeling within. Maybe there were times that I felt, yeah, I would feel that too if I were you. you know, and put myself in your shoes. I might not... Express it the way you are. Maybe I might. Who knows? But um, I would feel that way too. So there was understanding there. And there was a, a, a quiet stillness from which I might be able to act from. So I was happy that I was able to stay with it. And during that time I remembered, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone. Hatred never ceases by hatred. So that is the far enemy, is ill will, aversion, a pushing away. And the near enemy is attachment. With attachment, it, there's so much to be said. There could be you know, dozens of Dharma talks on attachment, but just in a nutshell. With attachment, there's a sense of ownership, with regard to another person. A sense of thinking that there's something, even my love, maybe that can, um, that will change that person, that will have some effect, that my action can have, maybe this is too strong a word, but in some cases it could be true. I've seen it true in my own life. Maybe my love, my action, what I do can have some control over that person. And we know that we can't. We see when we sit, one of the first things that we understand is that it's all so uncontrollable. It's trainable, but it's really so uncontrollable. How can we, how can we think that we can have any control or dominion over someone else when even with ourselves, you know, it's hard to be still when there's restlessness. It's hard to... Uh, be awake when there's sleepiness. So that isn't unconditional. That kind of love isn't unconditional. It's conditional in some way. So when there's attachment, which is the opposite of loving kindness, there's some conditionality in our love, that that person must be in a certain way in order for us to be happy, in order for us to be at peace 
with how things are. True love releases that person to their own karma. Of course we do everything we can to keep that person safe, to uh, have that person be as peaceful, as easeful as they can in their life, in our presence, in our relationship with them. But we can't control that. And that's why it's said that one of the most important aspects of loving-kindness is equanimity, which Annie will speak about in the next few days. Equanimity has that phrase, all beings are owners of their karma or of their action. Their happiness depends on that action or their own intentions and not upon my wishes for them. So yes, it's true that these phrases seem like wishes, but really they're offerings, they're blessings. Because in, uh, with wisdom we know that we don't have any control over whether they come true or not, but we still offer our love. When I was uh, practicing in Burma recently, Steve arrived when I was about halfway into my practice, and he visited me at the monastery I was at. He was going to another monastery. And I had a brief meeting with him during which he let me know that our cat, who we stopped counting, but the last time we counted, she was 22 years old. That, that was on the vet's records. And probably that was about three years ago. So... Um, that she probably wouldn't be alive when I got home. And so this was very, very difficult news for me, being very quiet inside and um, having had a long relationship with my cat. And, and those of you who have pets and loving pets know how it is, that your connection with them. So I went through a lot of um, letting go, the stages of letting go, because Steve told me that he already dug a hole, he already made a little coffin for her, and put all her lovely things that she used there, and she was just weakening and weakening. And so I went through a lot, you know, and I was really vulnerable and really open. And I was sending her metta during those afternoons. Um, But I realized I was sending her metta so that she would live. And it was completely conditional. And then I realized all beings are owners of their karma. And so I, I really had to find that place where I could release her to that. To let her go to whatever her path is. Another way I like to say that is all beings have their own path. No matter how much I've loved you, whether it's my cat or my children, I can't control the outcome of your life. I'll do everything I can. I might and probably would even give my own life, but I can't control the outcome of yours. And so I began to send her 
you know, less and less conditional love, and maybe there were snippets of unconditional love there. And so just offering her that metta. So I didn't want to hear any news, you know, when I got out of retreat, and I just would say, wherever you are, Feather, I I share the merit of my life with you, of my Dharma practice with you. May you be born in a life where you can be realized. Hear the Dharma. You know, those were my wishes. My girlfriend picked me up at the airport, and I looked at her, and she said, I know what you're going to ask. Feather is still alive, she said. And it was so miraculous because she was just on the brink of death. Now, I'm not thinking that my loving kindness did a thing for her, but she just had so much strength. And um, other things happened. She got other treatments. And that's her path. So now we're, she's, um, she's bedridden and we spoon feed her and she's happy every day. We're with her. We're still with her. And when we, we aren't there, we fly somebody over <laughs> to, to babysit for her <laughs> from far away because that's her favorite friend. <laughs> She's that precious to us. Um, so, of course, we'll do anything for her. We love her. And when it's her time to go, we'll still love her. So I'd like to end with these words from Rumi. The tender words we speak to one another are stored in the secret heart of heaven. And one day, like rain, like gentle rain, they will fall. And our mystery will grow green over all the earth. Sit for a moment. May the mystery of unconditional love fall like gentle rain over all the earth. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.